Chapter Twenty Eight A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Eight A. Close of the Civil War. Last Acts in the Great Tragedy. Lincoln at the Front. A Memorable Meeting. Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, and Porter. Life on Shipboard. Visit to Petersburg. Lincoln and the Prisoners. Lincoln in Richmond. The Negroes Welcoming Their Great Messiah. Great events crowded upon each other in the last few weeks of the Civil War, and we must pass rapidly over them, giving special prominence only to those with which President Lincoln was personally connected. The Army of the Potomac under Grant, which for nearly a year had been incessantly engaged with the Army of General Lee, had forced the latter, fighting desperately at every step, back through the wilderness, into the defenses about Richmond. And Lee's early surrender or retreat southward seemed the only remaining alternatives. But the latter course, disastrous as it would have been for the Confederacy, was rendered impracticable by the comprehensive plan of operations that had been adopted a year before. Interposed between Richmond and the South was now the powerful army of General Sherman. This daring and self-reliant officer, after his brilliant triumph at Atlanta the previous fall, had pushed on to Savannah and captured that city also. Then turning his veteran columns northward, he had swept like a dread meteor through South Carolina, destroying the proud city of Charleston and then Columbia, the state capital. General Johnston, with a strong force, vainly tried to stay his progress through North Carolina, but after a desperate though unsuccessful battle at Bentonville, March twentieth, 1865, the opposition gave way and the Union troops occupied Goldsboro, an important point a hundred miles south of Richmond, commanding the southern railway communications of the Confederate capital. The situation was singularly dramatic and impressive. In this narrow theatre of war were now being rendered, with all the leading actors on the stage, the closing scenes of that great and bloody tragedy. Grant on the north and Sherman on the south were grinding Lee and Johnston between them like upper and nether millstones. The last days of March brought unmistakable signs of the speedy breaking up of the rebellion. Lincoln, filled with anticipation not unmixed with anxiety, wished to be at the front. When we came to the end of the war and the breaking up of things, says General Grant, one of Lincoln's friends said to me, I think Lincoln would like to come down and spend a few days at City Point, but he is afraid if he does come it might look like interfering with the movements of the army, and after all that has been said about other generals he hesitates. I was told that if Lincoln had a hint from me that he would be welcome, he would come by the first boat. Of course I sent word that the President could do me no greater honor than to come down and be my guest. He came down, and we spent several days riding around the lines. He was a fine horseman. He talked and talked and talked. He seemed to enjoy it, and said, How grateful I feel to be with the boys and see what is being done at Richmond. He never asked a question about the movements. He would say, Tell me what has been done, not what is to be done. He would sit for hours tilted back in his chair with his hand shading his eyes, watching the movements of the men with the greatest interest. Another account says, 
Lincoln made many visits with Grant to the lines around Richmond and Petersburg. On such occasions he usually rode one of the general's fine bay horses, called Cincinnati. He was a good horseman, and made his way through swamps and over corduroy roads, as well as the best trooper in the command. The soldiers invariably recognized him, and greeted him, wherever he appeared amongst them, with cheers that were no lip-service, but came from the depth of their hearts. He always had a pleasant salute or a friendly word for the men in the ranks. Aside from the President's desire to be at the front at this critical time, he had an almost feverish anxiety to escape from the petty concerns and details of official life in Washington. In Wells's diary is this entry, March 23, 1865. The President has gone to the front partly to get rid of the throng, office-seekers, politicians, etc., that is pressing on him. The more he yields, the greater the pressure. It has now become such that he is compelled to flee. There is no doubt he is much worn down. Besides, he wishes the war terminated, and to this end, that severe terms shall not be exacted of the rebels. Much of the time during the President's visit to the army, he had his quarters on the steamer River Queen, lying in the James River at City Point. It was the same vessel on which he had received the Southern Peace Commissioners a month before, and the one on which he had made the journey from Washington. On the 27th of March a memorable interview occurred in the cabin of this vessel between President Lincoln, Generals Grant and Sherman, and Admiral Porter. General Sherman thus describes the interview. I left Goldsboro on the 25th of March and reached City Point on the afternoon of the 27th. I found General Grant and staff occupying a neat set of log huts on a bluff overlooking the James River. The General's family was with him. We had quite a long and friendly talk when Grant remarked that the President was nearby in a steamer lying at the dock, and he proposed that we should call at once. We did so, and found Mr. Lincoln on board the River Queen. We had met in the early part of the war. He recognized me, and received me with a warmth of manner and expression that was most grateful. We sat some time in the after-cabin, and Mr. Lincoln made many inquiries about the events which attended the march from Savannah to Goldsboro, and seemed to enjoy the humorous stories about our bummers, of which he had heard much. When in lively conversation his face brightened wonderfully, but if the conversation flagged, it assumed a sad and sorrowful expression. General Grant and I explained to him that my next move from Goldsboro would bring my army, increased to eighty thousand men by Schofield's and Terry's reinforcements, in close communication with Grant's army, then investing Lee and Richmond, and that unless Lee could effect his escape and make junction with Johnston in North Carolina, he would soon be shut up in Richmond with no possibility of supplies, and would have to surrender. Mr. Lincoln was extremely interested in this view of the case, and we explained that Lee's only chance was to escape, join Johnston, and, being then between me in North Carolina and Grant in Virginia, he could choose which to fight. Mr. Lincoln seemed impressed with this, but General Grant explained that at the very moment of our conversation General Sheridan was pressing his cavalry across James River from the north to the south, that with this cavalry he would so extend his left below Petersburg as to meet the South Shore Road, and that if Lee should let go his fortified lines, he, Grant, would follow him so close that he could not possibly fall on me alone in North Carolina. 
I, in like manner, expressed the fullest confidence that my army in North Carolina was willing to cope with Lee and Johnston combined, till Grant could come up. But we both agreed that one more bloody battle was likely to occur before the close of the war. Mr. Lincoln repeatedly inquired as to General Schofield's ability to maintain his position in my absence, and seemed anxious that I should return to North Carolina. More than once he exclaimed, "'Must more blood be shed? Cannot this last bloody battle be avoided?' We explained that we had to presume that General Lee was a real general, that he must see that Johnston alone was no barrier to my progress, and that if my army of eighty thousand veterans should reach Burksville he was lost in Richmond, and that we were forced to believe he would not await that inevitable conclusion, but would make one more desperate effort." General Sherman adds this personal tribute to Lincoln to the account of the interview on board the River Queen. When I left Mr. Lincoln I was more than ever impressed by his kindly stature, his deep and earnest sympathy with the afflictions of the whole people, resulting from the war, and by the march of hostile armies through the South. I felt that his earnest desire was to end the war speedily, without more bloodshed or devastation, and to restore all the men of both sections to their homes. In the language of his second inaugural address, he seemed to have charity for all, malice toward none, and above all an absolute faith in the courage, manliness, and integrity of the armies in the field. When at rest or listening, his legs and arms seemed to hang almost lifeless, and his face was careworn and haggard. But the moment he began to talk, his face lightened up, his tall form, as it were, unfolded, and he was the very impersonation of good humor and fellowship. The last words I recall as addressed to me were that he would feel better when I was back at Goldsboro. We parted at the gangway of the River Queen about noon of March 28th, and I never saw him again. Of all the men I ever met, he seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness combined with goodness than any other. A few days after the interview described by General Sherman, the President changed his quarters to the cabin of the Malvern, Admiral Porter's flagship. The Admiral says, The Malvern was a small vessel with poor accommodations, and not at all fitted to receive high personages. She was a captured blockade-runner, and had been given to me as a flagship. I offered the President my bed, but he positively declined it and elected to sleep in a small state-room outside of the cabin occupied by my secretary. It was the smallest kind of a room, six feet long by four and a half feet wide, a small kind of a room for the President of the United States to be domiciled in. But Mr. Lincoln seemed pleased with it. When he came to breakfast the next morning I inquired how he had slept. "'I slept well,' he answered. "'But you can't put a long sword into a short scabbard. I was too long for that berth. Then I remembered he was over six feet four inches, while the berth was only six feet. That day, while we were out of the ship, all the carpenters were put to work. The stateroom was taken down and increased in size to eight feet by six and a half feet. The mattress was widened to suit a berth of four feet width, and the entire stateroom remodeled. Nothing was said to the President about the change in his quarters when he went to bed. But next morning he came out smiling, and said, "'A miracle happened last night. I shrank six inches in length and about a foot sideways.' 
I got somebody else's big pillow, and slept in a better bed than I did on the River Queen. He enjoyed it greatly, but I do think if I had given him two fence-rails to sleep on, he would not have found fault. That was Abraham Lincoln in all things relating to his own comfort. He would never permit people to put themselves out for him under any circumstances. On the 2nd of April the stronghold of Petersburg fell into the hands of the Union troops. Lincoln, accompanied by Admiral Porter, visited the city. They joined General Grant and sat with him for nearly two hours upon the porch of a comfortable little house with a small yard in front. Crowds of citizens soon gathered at the fence to gaze upon these remarkable men of whom they had heard so much. The President's heart was filled with joy, for he felt that this was the beginning of the end. Admiral Porter says, Several regiments passed us en route, and they all seemed to recognize the President at once. Three cheers for Uncle Abe passed along among them, and the cheers were given with a vim which showed the estimation in which he was held by the soldiers. That evening, continues Admiral Porter, the sailors and marines were sent out to guard and escort in some prisoners, who were placed on board a large transport lying in the stream. There were about a thousand prisoners more or less. The President expressed a desire to go on shore. I ordered the barge and went with him. We had to pass the transport with the prisoners. They all rushed to the side with eager curiosity. All wanted to see the Northern President. They were perfectly content. Every man had a chunk of meat and a piece of bread in his hand, and was doing his best to dispose of it. "'That's old Abe,' said one, in a low voice. "'Give the old fellow three cheers,' said another, while a third called out, "'Hello, Abe, your bread and meat's better than popcorn.' It was all good-natured, and not meant in unkindness. I could see no difference between them and our own men, except that they were ragged and attenuated for want of wholesome food. They were as happy a set of men as I ever saw. They could see their homes looming up before them in the distance, and knew that the war was over. "'They will never shoulder a musket again in anger,' said the President. "'And if Grant is wise, he will leave them their guns to shoot crows with. It would do no harm.'" The next day, April 3rd, the Union advance under General Weitzel reached and occupied Richmond. Lee was in retreat, with Grant in close pursuit. When the news of the downfall of the Confederate capital reached Lincoln on board the Malvern, he exclaimed fervently, Thank God that I have lived to see this. It seems to me I have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years, and now the nightmare is gone. I want to see Richmond." The vessel started up the river, but found it extremely difficult to proceed, as the channel was filled with torpedoes and obstructions, and they were obliged to wait until a passage could be cleared. Admiral Porter thus describes what followed. When the channel was reported clear of torpedoes, a large number of which were taken up, I proceeded up to Richmond in the Malvern with President Lincoln. Every vessel that got through the obstructions wished to be the first one up, and pushed ahead with all steam. But they grounded, one after another, the Malvern passing them all, until she also took the ground. Not to be delayed, I took the President in my barge, and with a tug ahead with a file of Marines on board, we continued on up to the city. There was a large bridge across the James about a mile below the landing, and under this a party and a small steamer were caught and held by the current, with no prospect of release without assistance. 
I ordered the tug to cast off and help them, leaving us in the barge to go on alone. Here we were in a solitary boat, after having set out with a number of vessels, flying flags at every masthead, hoping to enter the conquered capital in a manner befitting the rank of the President of the United States, with a further intention of firing a national salute in honor of the happy result. Mr. Lincoln was cheerful, and had his little story ready for the occasion. Admiral, this brings to my mind a fellow who once came to me to ask for an appointment as minister abroad. Finding he could not get that, he came down to some more modest position. Finally he asked to be made a tide-waiter. When he saw he could not get that, he asked me for an old pair of trousers. It is sometimes well to be humble. I had never been to Richmond before by that route, continues Admiral Porter, and did not know where the landing was. Neither did the coxswain or any of the barge's crew. We pulled on, hoping to see some one of whom we could inquire. But no one was in sight. The street along the river front was as deserted as if this had been a city of the dead. The troops had been in possession some hours, but not a soldier was to be seen. The current was now rushing past us over and among rocks, on one of which we finally stuck, but I backed out and pointed for the nearest landing. There was a small house on this landing, and behind it were some twelve negroes digging with spades. The leader of them was an old man sixty years of age. He raised himself to an upright position as we landed, and put his hands up to his eyes. Then he dropped his spade and sprang forward. "'Bress de Lord,' he said. "'There is de great Messiah. I knowed him as soon as I seed him. He's been in my heart for long years, and he's come at last to free his chillin from der bondage. Glory hallelujah!' And he fell upon his knees before the President and kissed his feet. The others followed his example, and in a minute Mr. Lincoln was surrounded by these people, who had treasured up the recollection of him caught from a photograph, and had looked up to him for four years as the one who was to lead them out of captivity. It was a touching sight that aged negro kneeling at the feet of the tall gaunt-looking man who seemed in himself to be bearing all the grief of the nation and whose sad face seemed to say i suffer for you all but will do all i can to help you mr lincoln looked down on the poor creatures at his feet he was much embarrassed at his position don't kneel to me he said that is not right you must kneel to god only and thank him for the liberty you will hereafter enjoy but you may rest assured that as long as I live no one shall put a shackle on your limbs. And you shall have all the rights which God has given to every other free citizen of this republic. It was a minute or two before I could get the negroes to rise and leave the President. The scene was so touching that I hated to disturb it. Yet we could not stay there all day. We had to move on. So I requested the Patriarch to withdraw from about the President with his companions, and let us pass on. "'Yes, Mas,' said the old man. "'But after being so many years in the desert without water, it's mighty pleasant to be looking at lass on our spring of life.' "'Excuse us, sir. We means no disrespect to Mars Lincoln. We means all love and gratitude.' And then, joining hands together in a ring, the negroes sang a hymn, with the melodious and touching voices possessed only by the negroes of the South. 
The President and all of us listened respectfully while the hymn was being sung. Four minutes at most had passed away since we first landed at a point where, as far as the eye could reach, the streets were entirely deserted. But now what a different scene appeared, as that hymn went forth from the negroes' lips. The streets seemed to be suddenly alive with the colored race. They seemed to spring from the earth. They came tumbling and shouting, from over the hills and from the waterside, where no one was seen as we had passed. The crowd immediately became very oppressive. We needed our marines to keep them off. I ordered twelve of the boat's crew to fix bayonets to their rifles and surround the President, all of which was quickly done but the crowd poured in so fearfully that I thought we all stood a chance of being crushed to death. At length the President spoke. He could not move for the mass of people. He had to do something. "'My poor friends,' he said, "'you are free, free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. It will come to you no more. Liberty is your birthright. God gave it to you as He gave it to others.' and it is a sin that you have been deprived of it for so many years. But you must try to deserve this priceless boon. Let the world see that you merit it, and are able to maintain it by your good works. Don't let your joy carry you into excesses. Learn the laws and obey them. Obey God's commandments, and thank Him for giving you liberty, for to Him you owe all things. There now, let me pass on. I have but little time to spare. I want to see the capital, and must return at once to Washington to secure to you that liberty which you seem to prize so highly." The crowd shouted and screeched, as if they would split the firmament, though while the President was speaking you might have heard a pin drop. End of chapter 28a. Recording by Bill Borst.